Hello, thank you for listening to this podcast. I thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to be a supporter of this podcast and uh, if this is of benefit to you, please go to patreon.com slash timothyyap and we'll be... Uh, We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to have your support. It's patreon.com slash timothyyap. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thank you and God bless you. Let us pray. Father, as we come right now to your holy word, as we pause before you, as we listen afresh again to your words, we pray that your Holy Spirit may be present amongst us. Let us hear your voice speaking to us as we spend time treasuring these moments with you. You are the greatest love of our lives and we come to hear from you. Our lives are parched without your words, so fill us, flood us again with your beautiful words that our lives may show the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Within the English language, no one has written more words and more widely read than Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon was the first pastor of the first megachurch, even before the word megachurch was ever invented. A few weeks before Spurgeon died, he shared with a confidant that there was one person who taught him theology much more than all the teachers in his life. And this person that taught him more theology than anyone else was a lady by the name of Mary King. Mary King was no professor of any kind. She was not even highly educated. She was just a chef. She was just a cook. You see, when Spurgeon was a teenager, uh, Spurgeon enrolled in the Newmarket Academy in the Cambridge, England. While he was a teenage student there, Mary Cook served as the cook. She was the overweight cook that served them delicious food every lunchtime. And besides be just feeding the students with food, this lady loved to talk to the boys there about theology, about God, about the cross, about Calvinism, about God's sovereignty. And Spurgeon had a fun time over his short period of time there as he attended college talking constantly with Mary Cook about God. In his autobiography, Spurgeon recounts how Mary Cook would be the first person to introduce him to Calvinism, something that was became very important in the theology of Spurgeon himself. She would talk to him about election, about grace, about salvation and perseverance, and what vital godliness looks like. Spurgeon himself writes, I do believe I learned more from her than I should have learned from any six doctors of divinity of that sort we have nowadays. One lesson, one lesson that Charles Spurgeon learned from Mary Cook is that faithfulness is much better than any personal gain. You see, one time when young Spurgeon was talking to Mary Cook, Mary Cook was talking to her about how she kept going back to her church, even when preaching was very shallow and she couldn't find much she could, she could learn. So Spurgeon asked her, wouldn't it be better for you to stay home rather than to go to that church with that insipid teaching of theirs? 
And Mary Cook said this, Perhaps so, but I would like to go out to worship, uh, even if I gain nothing out of it. You see, I'm just like a little hand trying to search for food in a dumpster. And uh, sometimes she may get some, and sometimes if she doesn't get any, at least she gets to move, and that exercise warms her. Perhaps it was because of what Mary Cook said. That faithfulness is much better than personal gain. Spurgeon himself later on in life persevered through some of the most hardest times as a pastor. As he wrestled with depression. As he wrestled through the dowry controversy when Spurgeon pulled his church out of the Baptist Union. Because they did not like, Spurgeon did not like where they were going as far as treating the word of God. And because of Spurgeon's decision he was derided. He was criticized, he was censured, but Spurgeon persevered on. Perhaps it were the words of Mary Cook. It is better to be faithful than to receive personal gain. But what is most fascinating is that God used an overweight cook to influence Christendom's best and biggest and largest and most influential preachers in the English language, Charles Seddon Spurgeon. God can use anyone, even a married cook, to be a great influence for Him. And God can use you and me to be a great influence in His, in his kingdom. This is what Ezra chapter 9 verses 1 to 4 is about. As we work our way through the sermon series on the book of Ezra, you will find that as we come to chapter 9 verses 1 to 4, it's one of the more difficult passages in Scripture. Why? Because on a cursory level, it sounds like this is one of those Scripture passages that give the Bible such a bad press. You see, Ezra and the Jews have just returned to Jerusalem in Ezra chapter 9. And Ezra, as he returns to Jerusalem, receives a report that some of the, the, the Jews, including some of the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land. They have taken the women of the peoples of the land, that is the people that were living in Jerusalem at this time, as wives. When Ezra received this news, he was deranged. Verse 3 of chapter 9 tells us that Ezra tore his own tunic and his own clothes. In our modern parlance, this means that Ezra not only tore his own t-shirt, but he even tore his own underwear. And then he gets even crazier. Ezra starts pulling his hair and then his beard. Then he sits in silence for a period of time. To us, such reactions seem strange. You know, why do people pull their own beards and pull their own hair? We will think that uh, this person has gone cuckoo. Well, in the ancient world, pulling your own hair, tearing your own clothes, pulling on your beard, sitting in silence, are reactions that people usually do when there is a funeral, when somebody died. So when Ezra hears the news that the people have intermarried with the people of the land, Ezra treated that news as if somebody has died. This raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Is it therefore wrong to marry somebody of a different race? If it's not, why is it that Ezra behaved this way? Ezra behaved as if 
the world had come to an end when he received the news that the Jews have intermarried with the people of the land. So is the Bible racist? Especially in this culture of, of Black Lives Matter culture. This type of scripture doesn't abode well with many people. But let me make two preliminary comments first. Number one, the Bible is not against interracial marriages. If you look at the Bible as a whole, the Bible is not against it. One striking example is Numbers chapter 12. Moses took for himself a Cushite wife, a person from Cush. Cush is uh, modern day Africa. So uh, most likely Moses chose for himself a black woman. And Miriam, Moses' sister, was very distressed about this fact. And because of Miriam's response, God judged Miriam severely and she was struck with leprosy. So God is not against interracial marriage. Then you have Boaz marrying Ruth, a Moabitess. You have Esau marrying two Hittites. You have, you have the Joseph marrying an Egyptian wife in Genesis chapter 41, verse 45, and so forth. So the Bible is not against intermarriage. Then, why is Ezra so upset when he finds out that the Jews were intermarrying with people of the land? Let's take a closer look at the text. Let's zoom in at Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, please turn on to Ezra chapter 9. After these things have been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Kenites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Nemorites. Ezra here was upset because the Jewish people, including Levites and priests who should have known better, have not separated themselves. They have intermarried with the women of the people of the land. In the Hebrew, I know in NIV it says neighboring people. By the Hebrew, it is people of the land. It's an expression that's used 12 times in Ezra and Nehemiah. We first meet the people of the land in Ezra chapter 4. Initially, the people of the land, were, which are the people living in Jerusalem before Ezra and, uh, and, and his uh, Jews returned, they were very nice people. They were, most, they were very friendly. They, were, they tried to volunteer to help the Jews to build the temple in Ezra chapter 4. But once when their help was rejected, the people of the land started showing their true colors. They began to oppress the Jews. How? In Ezra chapter 4 verse 4, we read of how they try to discourage God's people. They try to discourage God's people. They try to terrify them and stop them from building the temple. And verse 5 tells us that they bribe the officials to work against the Jews. And they even lodge an, an, a, a letter and they even hire counselors to the, discourage the Jews in order to stop them from building the temple. So Ezra chapter 4 paints for us who these people of the land are. They are the people who are against the work of God. They're the people who oppress. 
oppressed God's people year after year. Because if you look at chapter 4 of Ezra, the oppression that these people gave to the Jews was not just for a short time, but they kept insisting and persecuting the Jews again and again and again over the reigns of a few Persian kings. So God was against the Jews intermarrying with these women of the people of the land, not because of their ethnicity, not because of their skin color, but God is against them because these people were downright evil. They were pagan in their outlook. They cared only for themselves. There is no glory of God in their hearts. So this is why Ezra was shocked and treated this news as a death blow because these people of the land were people who loved to oppress them. They were like the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. That the people who are like the traditional enemies of, of, of Israel. And the word Egyptian, they were like the Egypts, Egyptians thrown in here because Egyptians is the show us what they are like. They are the slave drivers. They like to oppress Israel. So what does this passage have to say to us? Two things I'd like to draw out of this passage. Number one, be careful who you bring into your life who can deeply influence you. Charles Eden Spurgeon brought Mary Cook into his life to influence him. But she was of such godly character that it influenced him towards God. But here God is warning the Jews, you have to be careful who you bring in to your life to influence you. The reason why Ezra is so much against this, these marriages is because these Jews are bringing these foreign people into their lives who have no fear of God, who have no concern for the glory of God into their lives. And Paul in the New Testament also has the same sentiments. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What do fellowship what fellowship can light hath with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What is Paul getting at here? It's important who you bring into the inner part of your life that you can share life with, that will influence you on a deep and a personal level. Many people take these verses, this verse of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 to mean that a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian. And I agree with that. But I think it's a little bit more than that. It includes people who deeply affect us in the way we make our decisions. Like a business partner, like a mentor, like somebody who can influence you on a deep and a personal way. It's not that God is trying to be difficult. But God gives us His commandments to protect us. Those who don't share the gospel, those who don't, are not impressed by the treasures of the gospel, are bound to oppress us. Why? Because Jesus and the gospel are deeply offensive. A person who has not tasted the sweetness of Jesus will find Jesus very 
bitter and hard to swallow. And if you bring that person deep into your life, into your deepest space that can influence you, then that person will be quite of an oppression to your soul. I know of a lady by the name of Diane. Let's just call her Diane. Diane was a very committed Christian. She had a heart of gold. She always wanted to be part of our uh, church's small group, but she couldn't. She longed to be part of the ladies' fellowship, but she couldn't. She wanted to be an encourager and be a mentor to some of the younger ladies, but she couldn't. Why? Because she was married to a non-believer. And as a wife, she had to keep peace at home. So she could only spend a certain amount of time outside in church. She only had uh, certain freedoms and certain hours that she could uh, be on her own. And then she had to go back to fix lunch for her husband. She couldn't join a small group because her husband expects her to be at home. She didn't give money to help with the church and with missions because she didn't want to disrupt their unity in her church. And if you speak to Diane, there is such grief. And such sadness when the person that's supposed to be closest to her doesn't share the same passion for the glory of Jesus and his gospel. And that's what Ezra is getting at here. Ezra is trying to warn the Jewish community, be careful who you bring deeply into your life, who can deeply influence you. So don't just intermarry with anybody. Ask yourself, will that person draw me closer to God and to Jesus? And will my appetite for the gospel increase because of this person's influence? Secondly, what can we learn out of this passage? Not only be careful who we bring deep into our lives who can influence us, but be careful of what we are most passionate about. In trying to stop the Jews from building the temple, Ezra chapter 4 actually tells us what these people of the lands, people of the land are like. They are deeply passionate in the ways of the world. When in trying to stop the Jews from building the temple, chapter 4 tells us that the people of them began writing letters to the Persian authorities. They wrote in Aramaic. Aramaic was the lingua franca of the ancient world at the time. It was the language that the, uh, the Persians spoke. So they wrote in Aramaic so that they could curry favor with the Persian authorities. They loved the ways and they were good at the ways of the world. The people of land refer to themselves in Ezra chapter 4 verse 16 as people who eat the salt of the palace. The expression to eat the salt of the palace means they, they are deeply entrenched in the payroll of the king and they have this obligation to be loyal. They eat the salt. They eat at the table of the king. They were people who know how to brown nose. They were people who excel in the ways of the world. They're deeply passionate how to get their ways. They were deeply good. They were good at getting their ways in the most of shrewd ways they could get. The people of the land were also good at fabricating untruths about the Jews and about the temple and about Jerusalem. 
Remember what they said about the temple. The reason why they opposed God's temple was because in their letter to the Persians, because it will be a hotbed of rebellion and such rebellion will mean that the Jews will withhold taxes from the Persian authorities, which are all untruths. Moreover, the people of the land insist that the king could uh, check up everything that they have said through digging up the archives. They were good at supporting their own cases, at trying to present their lies. They were even good at supporting their lies. These people were passionate, passionate in the ways of the world. They were savvy in getting their ways done. They know how to press the right buttons. But was God impressed? Was Ezra impressed? No. Ezra's response and default response was never to back the Persians. As we have seen in chapter 8, when Ezra encountered the problem of trying to bring the Jews back to Jerusalem and he found that they were unprotected and there were bandits along the way, Ezra never asked the Persians for protection. His default reaction whenever he meets with trouble is to pray. Ezra's greatest passion was not to brown nose up to the Persians, but Ezra's greatest passion was to God. Every time when he had a problem, he prayed. When Ezra hears the problem of this interracial uh, marriages that was happening here, this mixed marriages happening, Ezra's reaction was to pray. What is the greatest passion of your life? Is your, the greatest passion of your life the ways of this world and trying to get things done? I remember talking to a Christian not too long ago and he was telling me about this mentor that he highly respected. And I asked him, what is it that you so, what is it that you so admire about this mentor that you keep talking about and about? And do you know what he said? I love this man because not only because was he my mentor, he taught me how to make money and save money. This mentor was somebody who loved the ways of the world. But God would not be impressed. What are you most passionate about? Are you passionate about God as Ezra was? The reason why Ezra wouldn't want these marriages to go on was simply because the people of the land were not passionate about God. They were only passionate about themselves and how to get their way. It's not that the ways of the world are always wrong, but it's what impresses you the most. Who and what have the most influence upon your life? In 1955, Billy Graham was invited to preach at Cambridge University. He was invited to preach a series of sermons, five sermons. Before his arrival, the English media had a field day ridiculing Billy Graham. One editorial even said, What in the world is this backward American fundamentalist doing in our land, speaking to the best and the brightest in Cambridge University? And because of all this press that was going on, Billy Graham was intimidated. He felt this, the the, the eight and the, the, the cuts of the uh, criticisms. 
So for the first four nights, he flooded his messages with quotes from Kierkegaard, from Nietzsche, and from all these learned scholars. And as he preached, though there were lots of people, the first four nights was just uh, uh, filled with lots and lots of people. But the first four nights, Billy Graham bombed. The hall was packed, but the responses were very tepid. His preaching did not elicit a great response. On the last night, Billy Graham decided to ditch all the quotations, all the intellectual knowledge, and all these great quotes from all these great scholars. He decided just to preach about the blood of Jesus Christ. He decided instead of trying to please the people, to forget about all that, but to preach Jesus, to preach the blood. And so Billy Graham preached his heart out. In the audience was an Anglican preacher and the fo later founder of the Proclamation Trust, Dick Lucas. And this is what he said about Billy Graham's last night of preaching at Cambridge University. I'll never forget the night, he says. The night dear Billy got up and started at Genesis and went through the whole Bible and he talked about every single blood sacrifice you could ever, ever imagine. The blood was just flowing all through the great Samaris, everywhere for three quarters of an hour. And both my neighbours were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Jesus Christ. It was everything they disliked and dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, to everybody's shocked, about 400 young men and women came forward and committed their lives to Jesus. Dick Lucas later met a young curate and Cambridge grad at Birmingham Cathedral. Over tea he asked a young man, where did the Christian things for you begin? Oh, the curate said, Cambridge 1955. When? Billy Graham, what night? The last night? How did it happen? All I remembered, the curate said, as I walked out of the Great Samaris, was for the very first time myself thinking, Christ really died for me. The blood of Jesus Christ is deeply offensive. It's not the ways of the world. It defiles how the world thinks. It's not savvy. It's not up to date. It's not hit. But it's the truth. And that truth will change the world. Don't try to impress the world. Find your greatest passion in Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is what changes lives. That is why it is so important to let Jesus be the greatest and the most ultimate influence in our lives. And this is what the people of the land did not have. But Ezra had that in his heart to honor God above the Persians. Will you and I
Father, as we come to your holy word, we thank you so much that you have spoken to our hearts this morning. Father, at times we let the ways of the world so fool us that we are so enamored, that we are so impressed by the world and its ways that we frowned on the cross and Jesus Christ who loves us immensely. So Father, as we come to you this morning, lay our hearts again at your throne. We thank you that you loved us, not because of what we have done, not because of who we are, but because of your grace. So Father, we want to pray that the greatest passion in our lives will not be to world, but our greatest passion will be Jesus. May that be the greatest influence in our lives, that we may influence others towards godliness. Father, Ezra knew the importance of seeking you first above seeking the help of the world. May we have that passion for Jesus too, knowing that it's the cross, it is Jesus that ultimately changes lives, that ultimately matters. In His name we pray. Amen.